Dear fish, if you've been listening to this small collection of sound waves from wherever you live out there in the universe, I want to thank you for coming along. This podcast series has been an odyssey through all sorts of weird ideas, but when you put them all together and complete the jigsaw, it gives us the context to help understand who we are. This week's episode is the story of quantum mechanics with Dr. Pete Evans. So strap in, we're going to Australia. Thank you so much for coming on to Physics for Fish. Well, thanks for having me on and nice to meet you. Tell us, first of all, where you are in the world. Uh, so I'm at the University of Queensland, which is in Brisbane, Australia. And what's your area of research? Uh, so I specialise in the philosophy and foundations of quantum mechanics. Brilliant. So we've talked in previous episodes quite a lot about space-time, quite a lot about general and special relativity What we haven't talked about so much is quantum mechanics. So I'm so excited to delve into the quantum world. It's surprising, it's weird, it's unexpected. (laughs) I want to start with the general question of what is quantum mechanics? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Quantum mechanics is essentially a piece of mathematical machinery. And the, the, the purpose of the machinery is to model the behavior of subatomic physical systems. Mm -hmm. And it's not just modeling the behavior of, but also predicting experimental outcomes concerning these systems. So it sounds really abstract to put it in that way, but it's a nice way to distinguish this idea that it's just a big piece of mathematical machinery from the idea also that it's got an overarching theory, an interpretive framework that tells us about the quantum world. There's much, much more debate about what it tells us about the world than there is about the mathematical machinery. We are almost dead set certain that the mathematical machinery is correct, but thinking about what it means for the world is is another question altogether. So I guess the very first inclination that there was something that we might call the quantum world came in about 1899, Mm -hmm. and it involved a mismatch between the observed distribution of energy radiating off a hot body and what we should have observed according to what we thought was going on in thermodynamics. And so this was work done by Max Planck, and it turned out that the only way that we could match the observed distribution uh, of this radiation off a hot body was to assume that the light coming off the body was apportioned into small packets of energy. Now, I guess when I say light there, the the radiation was heat, but we know that kind of heat and light is all electromagnetic radiation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it came off in in small packets of energy. Uh, And so I think Planck's got some some quotes somewhere where he says, okay, I'm making this assumption, but surely this can't really be the case. But it didn't really take very long before these ideas about light coming in small packets of energy were confirmed by Einstein in his famous Annus Mirabilis in 1905. Mm. And so what he was able to do was discover that light actually does come in these little packets. And he ended up calling these little packets of light photons. And we can think of photons as being the very first quantum particle. It's the first inkling that we get that there are subatomic entities that depending on the experimental context, they can sometimes behave like a wave and sometimes behave like a particle. So previous to this, 
light was thought to be just a wave. Exactly, yeah. Light was just a wave. Um, and we had theories of light as a wave going back another 100 years before that. This was a pretty big U-turn for how we consider light, right? Yeah, that's true. Although light is an interesting one because for 100 years before that, so back in the 18th century, people were pretty sure it was a particle because this was one of Isaac Newton's famous theories was that light was a corpuscle. Yeah. And then he was apparently shown wrong by... Um, Fresnel, who showed light was a wave. And then they were both apparently showed a little bit wrong and a little bit right by quantum theory, <laughs> which showed uh, light to be a little bit like a particle and a little bit like a wave. And no wonder they were confused because we now think that light is is kind of both these things? Yeah, kind of. You, you might think it's both these things, but also kind of neither. It's a new type of entity, and that entity is a, it's a quantum entity. Yeah. Um, obeys its own particular... Um, set of rules, set of quantum rules. Um, but this was still in an era where it's now referred to when you look at the history of quantum mechanics as the old quantum theory. Mm. And the real clincher that moved the old quantum theory into what we now know as just regular quantum theory um, was work done on what, what are called emission spectra and associated work on the structure of the atom. These emission spectra are thin bands of light across the visible spectrum that are emitted by different atomic elements. And so each element has uh, a signature spectrum. So we can tell an element, and that's we actually do it when we look out into space. We can know what is the composition of stars because we can see their emission spectra. We can see that they're hydrogen because we know what the hydrogen spectrum looks like. But back in the early 20th century, it was unclear how an atom emits a spectrum in this way. And so the, the model that started the ball rolling here was a model due to Niels Bohr and Ernest Rutherford in about 1913, where they said an atom is a central nucleus with these electrons orbiting around in different orbits, a bit like a planetary model of the solar system. Yeah. And the orbits themselves are representative of energy bands. And when electrons jump between the gaps between the energy bands, they either absorb or emit light at these very specific wavelengths, which are the specific thin bands we see in the emission spectra. Mm. What was really interesting about this was the way that it then influenced the way, the way we describe mathematically what's going on classical mechanics didn't really seem to give us the correct behavior. So we get essentially two schools of thought in the middle of the 1920s about how to describe this. In about 1925, Werner Heisenberg, along with a couple of collaborators, Pascal Jordan and the, the supervisor of the whole project, Max Born, mm -hmm. they start thinking about how to model pure quantum phenomena operationally. Now, it's a little bit of jargon. What that means is that they're just worried about how we account for the observations themselves. So they're not worried about giving a background story of what underlies the observations. They're just worried about how observations relate to each other. Right. So that is, how can we describe what observations we'll see next, given what we can observe now. 
Sure. And certainly Heisenberg spoke about this. His sole goal was to describe only the observations. He wasn't worried about what's going on behind the phenomena, so to speak. Mm, That's a really interesting distinction. So we've got experimental data and then there are people trying to make sense of that And also then there's a second layer of what does it actually mean, which I hope we'll get to a bit later. So did people start building this machinery, this sort of mathematical model of what's happening just to explain the data? Yeah, well, this was this was one half of the efforts that were going on in the mid 20th century was trying to build this machinery to explain the data. But almost simultaneously, there were others working on trying to give what we can think of as a realistic description what's going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, on the flip side, probably starting in kind of 1924, Louis de Broglie, who was a French physicist, came up with this idea of describing particles that are simultaneously driven by waves. So he had this idea that all particles have this kind of wave nature that underlies them, that that at the subatomic level, shows itself as um, entities sometimes behaving like a particle and sometimes behaving like a wave. Mm. But it wasn't until 1926 that Erwin Schrödinger, who was reading de Broglie's work, used it as a launching pad to come up with a wave equation that shows how quantum objects evolve through time, given what we know about their behaviour. Yeah. And so... By 1927, there was a clear distinction between the Heisenberg picture of how the quantum world works and the Schrödinger picture of how the quantum world works, whereas one is trained on how we describe the observations and the other is thinking about what it is that underlies quantum phenomena. Mm. And what's that tension between these two camps, between Heisenberg and Schrödinger's camp? There was, and the tension was in a way philosophical, and so others fell in behind the camps. Niels Bohr became part of the Heisenberg camp, Mm -hmm. and Albert Einstein became part of the Schrödinger camp, where there must be some sort of realistic description of what's going on behind the phenomena. I feel like this gets to a really interesting point about physics and the, the job of physics, and whether we're just using it to explain things that we see in the world, or whether we're actually trying to go slightly deeper than that and describe some kind of objective reality that's really out there in some way. Yeah, that's exactly right. Are we just trying to predict what's going to happen next, or are we trying to understand why things happen as they do? Yeah, absolutely. And one of those feels almost more noble as a quest trying to understand the nature of our world and how it works and why it works feels like it's a kind of a more challenging way to operate, but maybe also more interesting from a philosophical perspective. Yeah, true. You're right. It is more challenging, but depending on what's going on in, in, a, in any particular scientific field, there's also a practical concern. Mm-hmm. And this is part of what we see in quantum mechanics. There's so much debate about what is the picture of reality that underlies quantum phenomena that the debate has almost become paralyzing Mm. and therefore you talk to kind of regular quantum physicists and they would prefer to um, desist from the debate so that they can get on with their job of just doing quantum physics. Yeah, yeah. 
So this kind of, this Niels Bohr picture, and he's thought of as the historical spokesperson, the Niels Bohr picture, it's almost an operational idea of, of what's going on. We don't worry about the picture that underlies it. We just get on with the job of using the theory to solve the practical problems that we've got. Yes. So this sort of divide still very much exists today. Yes. And it's kind of in lots of different forms. The debate has become more advanced, but deep down, that is something that underlies contemporary quantum mechanics. And I guess just to put a nice capstone on that small brief history that I'm giving. Yes. This was in the mid to late 20s. By, by 1932, it had been shown that these two ways of thinking about the evolution of quantum systems were actually equivalent, formally equivalent. Oh, right. And so it's at that point that we start to get the first general textbooks emerging on the full theory of quantum mechanics. And that must have felt like a really good day for physicists, you know, to have two kind of rival camps that then come together so beautifully and so perfectly. You must feel good about your theory at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Although by this stage, this is now 1932, 33, a lot of these physicists were German. Sure. Was, lots were going on in Europe. And we have a bit of a hiatus where there's not only fracturing of the scientific community, those that stayed and those that left, mm. but also physicists that get caught up in the war itself in Europe. And then the respective bomb projects of the United States and the fledgling projects in Nazi Germany. And all these physicists uh, somehow get embroiled in the, in these atomic bomb projects. So Niels Bohr was, was kind of a figurehead in the, in the US, UK bomb projects. You know, reality took over. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Having physics progress have such high stakes. It is kind of remarkable. Yeah. I'd love to talk about what we consider to be the quantum world and, and how it's different from our ordinary world, why it's so weird. Yeah, okay. So I guess there's some specific phenomena that is typically quantum. The main phenomenon that gets talked about a lot is quantum entanglements. Yes. And this is when... Two systems have interacted at some point in time so that the interaction needs to be specific in such a way that the different parts of the system are correlated. And what we mean by that is when we move them away, doesn't matter how far apart, what we observe on one part of the system is related in some way to what we observe on the other part of the system. Now, there's kind of a confusion sometimes about how we should think about this. So it's, it's not the case that the systems are somehow connected. They don't remain connected in the sense of, you know, a, a piece of goop remains connected when you string it out and it's got some, some physical connection between them. Mm -hmm. We don't think these systems remain connected and there's no apparent connection until we actually look at them anyway. So we need to kind of take one side and take the other side and we look at them, we measure one side and we measure the other side. And then we need to, whoever it, whoever it is that does the measurement, get together again and say, well, what did you measure? And what did you measure? And you kind of write it down, you compare notes. Mm. And after doing this many, many times, you can look at the data and the data suggests 
that this isn't just chance. The way that they end up um, uh, behaving is not just chance. There's some correlation. There's some statistically significant uh, relationship between the values of the parts of the system. So, you know, if I have a coin here and you have a coin in Australia and we, we toss our coins at the same time and mine always comes up heads when yours comes up tails and yours always comes up heads when mine comes up tails, is that the kind of correlation we're talking about? Yes, precisely. That's exactly right. But it's even deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And this was something that, that really disturbed Einstein. And this is part of what became known as the Bohr-Einstein debate, <laughs> debating exactly how we should think about what's going on in these sorts of scenarios. And Einstein, with a couple of his colleagues, he argues that if quantum mechanics is supposed to obey the laws of relativity theory, which of course was Einstein's theory from 20 years previously, so if quantum mechanics is going to obey the laws of relativity theory, that would mean that there's no sense that the operation on one side can influence the outcomes on the other side. Then the theory has to be incomplete because there's obviously something going on and the theory is not telling us what's going on. So you had this argument that just said, okay, the theory is incomplete if it's going to obey my theory of relativity. Sure. And so this debate goes on. And then in the 60s, um, Northern Irish physicist by the name of John Bell was thinking about this particular problem and some interpretations of how we think about quantum mechanics mm -hmm. and tried to come up with a really precise physical argument that might transform what looks like, you know, an academic philosophical argument about um, whether we obey the laws of relativity theory or whether quantum theory is complete. And he came up with a theorem, which we now know as Bell's theorem. And he, he was able to show that there can be no completion of quantum mechanics, a completion in the sense that Einstein wants. Einstein says it's incomplete. It says what we need to do is complete the theory. And Bell says we can't complete the theory and also maintain locality, this sense that we can't communicate between the systems. And what would completing the theory look like? Well, okay, good question. <laughs> so the idea was that there are hidden variables that underlie the theory. So we've got this mathematical machinery that tells us the way that the quantum world behaves. Mm -hmm. And the thought was that maybe there's something else underlying what we can tell in this theory. So the picture of the world that we get in this theory is missing a deeper truth about the, the nature of quantum entities. So kind of second layer. Exactly. Sure. And there were plenty of proposals about what that could be. And I mean, this is a proposal that stretches back to Louis de Broglie in 1924 mm -hmm. and then gets rediscovered in 1951, 52 by one of Einstein's grad students, a guy by the name of David Bohm. We now know this theory as de Broglie-Bohm theory. And it says that what's really underlying quantum mechanics is this universal wave through all space on which classical-like particles are riding the wave, a bit like a surfer rides the waves. I was going to say, it sounds like they're surfing, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the, the wave propagates and the particles ride the wave and what gives the particles their quantum behaviour 
is the fact that the wave is quantum in the way that it behaves. So it pushes the particles around in a way that's non-classical, but when we go to look, the particle is a particle. So that's this nice way to imagine wave-particle duality. Sure, you've got this, this quantum wave sort of instructing and pushing these classical particles to, to behave in certain ways. Exactly. And so that's one proposal of how you can come up with a hidden variable theory. That's what they call now, hidden variable theory, that would complete quantum mechanics. Now, what was what's key about that example is that it disobeys what Einstein really wanted it to obey, which was his relativity theory, because this, this quantum wave that underlies everything needs to send signals faster than the speed of light in order for it to match the quantum behaviour. And that's a big no-no in physics, right? That would destroy the whole theory of relativity. Right. That's exactly right. And so Bell was actually thinking about that theory when he came up with his, his what we now call a no-go theorem. And it's called a no-go theorem because it tells us where our picture of the world can't go mm. if it wants to match the predictions of quantum mechanics. Before we get on to what quantum mechanics tells us about the world, I just want to go back to uh, something you said, which was about observation and talk a little bit more about that. Um, mm. you, know, you referenced when these two entangled particles move apart, they only display this behavior when we observe them. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a really strange thing to have in your physical theory, that you need a, a human being, you know, with a measuring device to go and actually look at your thing before it will tell you anything. And that's quite a contentious issue within quantum mechanics as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can think about all of the different puzzles that quantum mechanics raises. It's one of the key puzzles. And one way to think about it is in the context of the, the history of science in general, from the scientific revolution forward, one of the things that Copernicus showed us was that if we can remove the human perspective and think in what we might call the third person, so think of the God's eye view of the scenario, then we can come up with a better description of what's going on. So it might look to us like the moon and the sun and the stars spinning around us but that's just our perspective we can remove our perspective think outside our perspective and we can see a rotating earth that's also orbiting the sun gives us a better description of what's going on the scientific revolution is almost a story of people saying hey that is a cool trick let's apply it everywhere and see where we get and we get the next 300 years of the most amazing science that we could imagine and the advances in our standard of living and the industrial revolution and so on. This is what that trick earns us. Mm. It is an amazing trick. And then we get to quantum mechanics and it looks like trying to pull that trick just won't work. And it's, it's a theme that's run through some of these debates in quantum mechanics, how far we can or we can't pull that trick where we remove ourselves from the scenario. We remove our perspective and give an objective description of the world. Yeah, because in so many parts of quantum mechanics, the observer, the role of the observer seems to be baked in to the theory. Exactly. There's something about the interaction between the observer and the system that is fundamental to what we know about the system itself. 
We can't seem to detach ourselves from the system to learn about the system without us observing it. Which is a very strange and new way to do physics. To, to have us, to have little human beings have a role in the physics just, just seems mad. Yes, and it's met enormous resistance throughout the whole of, of the history of quantum mechanics. It has met um, big resistance of people saying, no, that just can't be right. We must be getting something wrong. And in, in, in a way, that's kind of what Einstein's position was, thinking, well, it must be incomplete in some way. We must be missing some part of the story. Yeah. Let's move on to what quantum mechanics tells us about the world and what it means for how we understand reality. It's a really interesting question because if we were to ask whether we were right about the machinery, the mathematical machinery, and what I mean by right is it gives us a true representation of reality. It's telling us the real structure of reality. Mm. And when we ask that question, the answer is overwhelmingly that, yes, it has to be. Um, it is an unbelievably accurate theory. I think in some of the measurements in quantum electrodynamics, the prediction and the measurement matches up to about 10 decimal places. This is an unbelievably accurate theory and it's very rarely wrong. Yeah. So we know something must be right about it then. Exactly. Exactly. We're onto something. We don't have this sort of novel success in a theory unless we're saying something about the actual structure of reality. Mm. But then when it comes to what it means for our understanding of reality, this is a vexed question. And what we have is a whole range of different ways of thinking about the world that are all, um, in general, consistent with quantum mechanics. They're all what we say empirically equivalent because we can't tell a difference between them by looking at the world, but they tell us very different things about the way that the world is. Mm -hmm. So one example we've already discussed, this example of uh, a non-local wave underlying reality and quantum particles surf that wave. So that's one way the world could be. But there's massive disagreement about this. Probably the most popular interpretation of the quantum formalism is known as the many worlds theory. Mm -hmm. And that says that given the quantum description, when we have what look like multiple possible outcomes in some particular scenario, the interpretation says that all those outcomes are equally real. Yeah. So uh, what we get is a bifurcation of all the different outcomes, or we might say a branching of all the different outcomes. And on each branch is one of the possible outcomes from the theory. And so what it says is, say, I go into a lab and do an experiment, and in the different branches are different copies of me with all the different outcomes of the quantum experiment that I have done, and so on and so forth into the future. So every time there's a, a quantum experiment, there's this massive branching phenomenon going on and so on and so on until you can imagine that this is going to be a, a huge number of different parallel parallel worlds all existing side by side. I mean, it strikes me that it would be an infinite number because surely there are infinite quantum possibilities at any one time. Yeah, yes. It would be very, very large, possibly even infinite. Yes. <laughs> that seems like a fairly 
astounding idea and one that I'm not sure how to make sense of because as well as you going into the lab and finding that a quantum particle goes left, there's a version of you that finds a quantum particle goes right. But presumably there's also a version of you in this in this model where you never go to the lab and instead you go swimming or instead you turn into a mushroom. Like I'm not sure how far this branching universe thing extends. Right, yeah. And that's a it's a really good question. Um, I mean, there's 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 a couple of things to note um, about well about this branching world interpretation. One is that there is a kind of equivalence between it and the de Broglie Bohm interpretation, this kind of quantum surfing interpretation. Mm-hmm. The underlying way that is pushing the particles around, in a sense, has these empty branches where particles could be on the wave. And if the particles were on those parts of the waves, then you would end up with a different outcome of a particular experiment. So you might think of de Broglie-Bohm as being, in a sense, like the branching universe interpretation, except only one of those branches happens to be real. And another thing to note is, depending on the sort of problem you're trying to solve, there's either deep resistance to what we might call a bloated ontology, where we've got all of these parallel universes. We might think that's just a bit too much for reality. Yeah. But then when trying to solve other problems, all of a sudden it just becomes almost unavoidable to start thinking that something like the many worlds interpretation has to be the right sort of interpretation. Another one that is probably less popular is that not only do we have a quantum wave that reaches out forwards in time, but then there's also a quantum wave that comes back to us backwards in time. Mm. And it's the interaction between the forwards in time and the backwards in time wave functions that combine to give us what ends up being the reality of, say, a particle transitioning from point A to point B. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that sounds equally weird. Right. Exactly. And there's really interesting things to say about how it meets the challenges of these no-go theorems, how it solves uh, various problems about the way we observe systems and our role uh, in in the flow of time and so on. Mm. But again, these are these are proposals and the proposals, you know, they don't seem so compatible and they seem, in fact, vastly different. And so it's just not clear in this debate what we should be saying about the world. But don't let this detract from the fact that the mathematical machinery is almost incontrovertible. So given that then, given that situation, do you think there's a chance that none of these interpretations are on the money? And in fact, what's happening is that we've got some machinery that we don't yet understand. And one day someone hopefully will figure out the kind of missing pieces of the puzzle and put quantum mechanics into a bigger jigsaw that makes sense of these quantum effects and makes sense of the predictions that we can do without necessitating either many worlds or a de Broglie-Bohm interpretation. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the little local holy grail. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly my feeling is that in recent times, so the, the past couple of decades, there's been a, a slow drift away from thinking about these interpretations and a shift towards thinking about what are the definite constraints that we can place 
on what an interpretation should look like. Probably the most exciting recent no-go theorem involves what's known as these extended Wigner-Friend scenarios. Eugene Wigner had this thought experiment. It's a little bit like Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, but instead of putting a cat in a box, Wigner puts his friend in a lab and then, <laughs> you know, some quantum process happens inside the lab, but the lab is completely sealed. And then Wigner can do an experiment to try and work out what's going on inside the lab. And the extended Wigner's friend scenario, we get these entangled particles and we send them to the people inside the labs and we have two Wigner's with two friends and the Wigner's then perform some quantum measurement on the friends inside the lab. Now, in this elaborate setup, we end up with a no-go theorem that tells us if we want to maintain locality in that Einstein sense, and we have some natural assumptions concerning our freedom to control experimental systems, so these are both very natural assumptions, if we have those assumptions, then there can be no God's eye description of everything that goes on in this particular experiment. So that is, the agents involved will see some results, but those results will be inconsistent between the agents that are involved. And there's no objective story about what is Exactly. Happening. There's no objective story. We usually think that when we look at the world, we can set out an array in time of all of the events that ever happened. And there's some fact of the matter about it. And we can imagine, say, Zeus standing on Mount Olympus, looking down at the world and seeing everything that, that happens throughout all time. Yeah. And quantum mechanics is, is telling us that there's no such view of the world <laughs> because there are inconsistencies about what particular agents will say in these highly attenuated experimental scenarios. So quantum mechanics is so complicated that even Zeus can't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. That's brilliant. Yeah, and it's, it's worth just letting that idea sink in a little bit. I mean, that is a pretty deep-seated intuition we have about the nature of the world. And that looks like it's it's blown out of the water by these results in quantum mechanics. But that's why the whole quantum world feels so fascinating. We've got all these intuitions that we walk around with every day and we don't really sort of think about them because they're so baked in. And quantum mechanics feels like it's trying to tear those up one by one. So, you know, either this reality is part of a whole multiverse full of different options or the role of the observer is actually key to our physics, which also seems to be kind of wildly contrary to how we feel about the world. But actually, because the quantum world is very different from us and has different rules, maybe it is our intuitions that are wrong, right? I mean, there's a real possibility that our little human perspective is just not applicable on every level. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's a really nice way to think about it, that it could be something about us that we're, that we're missing here. And I guess my, my personal opinion is that that's probably going to be part of the solution. This idea that we play such a significant role in our description of the system, we can't kind of detach ourselves from the system, I think is a powerful one. And I think a lot of the results, they're at least hinting in that direction. Something, some one of our intuitions has to be wrong. And it's just a matter of working out which one it is. Yes. And as you know, this podcast is called Physics for Fish, and fish are these hypothetical beings in outer space who have a totally different perspective on the world. So maybe they can help us out. Maybe they can see what we can't see, and they have their own interpretations of what's going on. That would be helpful. <laughs> yeah, please let us know. <laughs> That's it. 
you got to the end of the last episode, which means that now you know everything. Thank you to Pete and all my guests throughout the series, to Tom Penn for the wonderful music, and to the fish we met along the way. Over the course of this podcast, I've learned that physics is confusing, extraordinary, and bonkers. But no matter who or where you are in the universe, physics is out there. And I think that's pretty cool, don't you? Fish, 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 fish,